You ready to get into the Word? All right. We are in a series called The Kingdom Among Us. We are in part six, The Kingdom Heart, and we are going through the Gospel of Matthew. And there is a crowd gathered on a hillside to hear from Jesus, and they have just experienced things they had never experienced before that broke their paradigm, tumors getting healed, seizures stopping, demonic oppression fleeing. They were experiencing the fruit. They were tasting the fruit of the kingdom of God. And Jesus gathered around and he said, you've tasted the fruit. Do you want to see where it comes from? Do you want to see how that fruit grows? Do you want to see how that fruit is made? Because my kingdom didn't just come to serve your physical needs. It didn't just come to serve your emotional needs. It has come to change you from the inside out. Let's take a look at this passage of Scripture. This is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 to 26. Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. That opening phrase, that opening phrase, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means. That means there's no way. There's no shortcut, there's no bonus question, there's no sidetrack, there's no warp zone, there is no hidden track through the side, there's no side door, there's no back door, there is no way. You will be by no means get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, isn't that an odd phrase? unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Is Jesus inviting us to be more obsessed with how things look than the Pharisees are? Is he 
Is he inviting us to be even more legalistic than the kings of legalism? No. He's saying, unless your righteousness is of a different quality, it's of a completely different kind, you will not experience and you will not enjoy the kingdom of God in your heart or in your life. The Pharisees and the scribes, they relied on the law or outward observances. They liked to look good and, and appear like they were holy. They liked the influence and the authority that they had. They liked to pray on the street corners so everyone could hear. They liked to parade their families around in robes and nice haircuts so everyone could see how beautiful their families were. And, you know, the, it, and I'm sure... At one time or another, we have all, and many of us still, and I do today, struggle with an obsession or getting fixated on how we look, on how we appear, on what might, people might think of us, right? I mean, that's, that is a common, that's a universal struggle for humanity. And Jesus often alerts us to this struggle through his illustration of an apple tree. And he says, can a good tree bear bad fruit? Or does a bad tree bear good fruit? No. Trees bear the fruit from where they're, the life that their roots are plugged into. An apple tree doesn't work to make good apples. An apple tree bears apples out of the life that it's plugged into. Because that's its nature. You know, growing up, we had several apple trees in our yard. Um, and one of the apple trees was a Gravenstein apple tree that uh, made really good apples for applesauce and apple pies. And so Grandma still makes my kids yummy cinnamon applesauce from Gravenstein apples, although they don't come from this tree anymore. Because growing up, the, the, the tree ended up with an infestation of those white... Um, caterpillar-looking bugs that are about that big, and they just started to peel away, and the, the bark um, started to split, and the tree was just grievously sick um, around at the, towards the base of its trunk, and we tried to treat it. We tried to put blue goop to kill the bugs on it outside, but what happened is, is that the, the fruit on the tree ended up small, barky, rotten, disgusting. It kind of made the, 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 the apples not good anymore. Um, and so when people would ask, hey, can we have some applesauce? Can we have an apple pie? When are you going to make that again? I mean, I guess what we could have done is gone down to Trader Joe's and bought two or three bushels of apples and gone out to the tree and nailed some good apples all over the tree and uh, then said, yeah, see, this apple tree is, is making all kinds of wonderful apples now, and uh, we, we can pick them up and make you that applesauce. Except what will happen next season? What kind of apples will it make? Doesn't that describe so much of our behaviors and efforts to just be better and get better and not do the same things again. It amounts to us <laughs> looking at the tree, knowing that there's rotten fruit on the branches, 
knocking it off, going down and trying to buy something and nailing up some good apples on the tree so that at least for a few days it looks okay. But we really have not addressed where our roots are plugged into. We have not addressed how that fruit is grown. And in that way, Jesus is saying, hey, look, the Pharisees and the scribes, their righteousness all comes from the outside and how things look. And you've tasted the fruit of my tree, of my kingdom, and my kingdom is coming into your hearts so that the fruit that comes off of your branches will no longer be rotten anymore. And that is an amazing thing. So he begins, he begins to explain what the fruit of a kingdom heart is going to look like. Um, and he uses six comparisons um, of said, you've heard it said this way. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes have taught you. And, but I'm saying this. And so the first thing he addresses is anger. Why? We don't talk about anger very much. But I'd probably say that anger is one of the most destructive forces, human forces on the planet. I mean, if you think about all of the wrongdoing that happens at any level, both even in family relationships or even up to between nations and nations, it comes back to roots of anger in a person, a human heart. That's why Jesus is addressing it first. You know, I did not really consider myself an angry person until I had children. I love you, Josh. I'm going to tell a little story. But I'm the bad guy in this story, so don't, don't worry. You're going to be just fine. Um, so Jesus begins to tell us some things about anger. And I, uh, this was a while back. My kids like to ride. My boys like to ride dirt bikes around the property. And uh, we have a certain way that you're supposed to go. You're supposed to go and follow one another around in the same direction so you don't have any head-on collisions and problems. And there was a time I was standing out. My cousins were there. We were talking. Um, they were riding around and... All of a sudden, Aaron peels off, and he goes down to a lower part of the property, and um, Joshua peels out and goes back up the other to the upper part, and all of a sudden, then I see Joshy whip by, and he heads down towards the way that Aaron had gone, and all of a sudden, I hear Aaron's motor approaching as they're coming up, and I'm thinking, this is not going to be good. Um, and so I begin to walk from towards in that direction. And I see Aaron come up the path, and I see Joshi come down the path. They see each other, and Joshi turns to get out of the way, and the bike kind of rolls almost to the edge of the hill and kind of starts to go down the hill. You remember this? Okay. Uh, yeah. So Aaron goes the other way, and then he gets, Aaron gets off, and it looks like he's going to help Joshi get his bike up off the hillside. Well, Joshi turns around and kicks Aaron in the shins. <laughs> A kick at him, like, I want to do it myself. Leave me alone. And, and uh, then Aaron reacts and pushes him down. And then 
Joshua turns and he's, I can tell he's going to come to me to tell me what Aaron has just done. And Aaron turns to look and they both realize that at that moment I've been walking towards them and seeing all of this take place. And as I approach, both of their mouths start to open to tell me it's the other person's fault. Nobody's been in this situation before. The problem is, is that as I was walking out, I mean, each progression, the anger inside of me was just getting to a boiling rate. And when I got there, I lit you guys up like fireworks. You remember that? And I took them. I walked them both into the house. I told them they would never get their bikes back, you know, ever. I was going to sell them on Craigslist the next day. I, no, they were going to lose it for a year or some, something just, you know, I was, I had, I had blown the proverbial gasket. Uh, and I, they're inside and I'm walking out. My body's like shaking with anger. I mean, I'm just, I mean, it's like, and it's really uncomfortable. I don't know if you've been that angry before, but it's very uncomfortable to shake with anger. And I get, I get out and I'm, I'm walking these bikes back and I'm, I'm, I'm angry and I, like there's a point where the anger starts to kind of subside. And of course, then you start to feel real sorrow, like, oh no. Um, And I just stopped. And the only thing I could pray was, what is wrong with me? And I, I still remember the spirit of the Lord spoke something to me very simply and very clearly said, are you angry because they broke your law or my law? And my, my, it's, the Lord can cut you to the heart and you can feel so naked in his presence and so aware of your shortcoming, but at the same time, there was not one whiff of irritation. He came to bring that correction in my life to set me free. Not to hurt me. Now my kids definitely did need discipline. They needed correction. But they did not need it to be executed in anger. Because the simplest definition of anger is that it's an emotional reaction to the violation of our will. When our will is violated, we have an emotional reaction to it. When our life is interrupted, we have an emotional reaction to it. And anger really first arises as an alert system. It's like radar. It says, hey, Somebody has crossed your path. Your, whether intentionally or unintentionally, your will, what you wanted to happen, has been, has been violated or is about to be violated. Your life has, has been interrupted. And in that way, God experiences and has anger. That's why he's, in a sense, that's a holy anger. It's an alert system to the violation of our will. And in his, and in his case, the violation of his will is is sin. He is angry over sin's destruction in our lives and in the the damage that it does to people. But what do we do with that anger when it arises? Do we allow it to, to give us 
an indication, a, a note, okay, like a radar system, boop, there's a bogey that just appeared. Now what do we do with it? Or do we feed the anger, we indulge the anger, and then we harbor the anger? Like what Jesus said, it's not just that whether I would have screamed and yelled or, or said bad words to my children at that very time, it's the anger that I indulged, that I fed, and that I stored up that was going to be an injury to my kids. You know, that's, and when I, when, when, because harbored anger, stored up anger is an injury to others in its own right. It is apart from any acting out, anger hurts people. When I, because when I discover your stored up anger at me or your harbored anger at me, I am already wounded. Why? Well, we know that people who harbor anger towards us, they will our harm. They want us to hurt. And by just their look, mean look, or refusal to look, they won't make eye contact with us. Or because they raise their voice, or they give us the silent treatment, they intend to make a painful impression on us. And this is why it is so damaging to our children to discipline them in anger. It's not that they don't need discipline or correction, they do. But when it's done in anger, and I'm speaking to myself, when it's done in anger, they know in their spirits that in that moment we are willing their harm. That cannot be. That's not how our Heavenly Father works with us. That's not the love that He has for us. Harbored anger disintegrates life and it destroys relationships. It does not have to be specifically acted out to poison the world around you. Because of its evil nature, the way it seizes us, how it stresses our environment, the anger you carry around inside is never hidden. You might think you've kept it to yourself, but it's never hidden. All the resources, mental and emotional, where we nurture and tend the anger and we, we, our body throbs when we remind ourselves of how wrongly we've been treated. And what this leads to is, of course, unintentional or unrelated, seemingly unrelated explosions. How many of you have ever seen, even in yourself or in someone else, an explosion of anger that seemed totally not to make sense to the incident of what just happened, Right? an outburst that was totally mismatched. was because of explosions of anger are really rarely about the incident at hand anyway. Most of us, or many of us, carry a, a ready supply of anger already. And so like a pressure cooker that's like three degrees away from going, Poof, as soon as somebody turns that heat up just a little bit, we have an outburst. That's why Jesus is saying, you, you've heard it said, don't kill somebody or don't scream curse words at them. But what I'm saying is, is that the anger you're feeding and indulging and storing up at your, in your heart that is misdirected is actually the source of the problem. And what I'm coming to do is deal with that. Because when I deal with that in your heart, you won't have to worry about the fruit on your branches. The progression of anger moves from anger 
Actually, he, in the next phrase, he says, you know, whoever says raka. Well, raka is a symbolic word for contempt. And contempt is a disregard for a person's value. It's the stereotyping, name-calling, generalizing, dehumanizing. See, in anger, I want to hurt you, even in a moment. But in contempt, you're not worth my time. I've written you off. How many of you says, oh, I don't care what that person says. That person is dead to me. That person, I don't care what that person thinks. I am over that person. That, I have written that person. That person no longer has any rights to speak into my life or whatever, however the, the story goes. There is just a, there is a contempt, a writing off of the person completely. You know, we can be angry at someone without denying their worth. But contempt actually makes it easier for us to hurt people and see them degraded because the purpose of contempt is always to exclude, to push away, to leave isolated. Contempt becomes a more refined evil, sometimes even a sanctioned evil, a more refined evil than anger. You can see it on the playground, kids leaving certain kids out of the group, pushing them to the side. You can see it at parties. You can see it in petty office alliances, dinner gatherings. You can even see it in churches. In many settings, contempt for one group is actually part of being in good standing for another. Contempt, therefore, is harder than anger to pin down. Um, a while back, I wanted to pursue, just personally, I wanted to pursue a ministry partnership. Um, and it was with a ministry that I really be I believed in their mission, and I really loved what they had to, to offer. I saw a lot of future, a lot of synergy, a lot of, I mean, it was awesome. I wanted it to happen. And uh, in the conversations with the leader of the ministry, I started to notice a few times the person would write people off and say some negative things like this type of person or that person, um, and it was just negative. It was like they were writing the, the people off, and at first it, it's, I was like, that didn't really make sense, or mm, that was kind of a red flag. Uh, and then it happened a few times, and I thought, I really need to address this with a person. I don't know where it's coming from. Um, and so we had to sit down, and I said, I don't know, you know if anyone's ever told you this before, and I, I'm not saying I understand why, but I've noticed these things that you've remarked, you've said about people, um, and it really concerns me. And what, where is that coming from? And we had a reasonably good conversation um, what I seen by reasonably good is like there was some ownership, but not real total ownership. Um, and I, there was some reasonable explanation, but see, I wanted it to go forward so much that I kind of accepted that conversation as being good enough. Um, and then some time passed in another situation, another circumstance came up where there was a big flare up of that behavior. Uh, and I said, oh no, I, this isn't really changing. And so I had to have another sit down with the person. And this time, we were, I was really like, I, I don't think this is going to work. This is, this is really, could be really potentially damaging to people. Um, and, but, but not out of judgment. Like, I'm still trying to uncover, like, what, where is this going? What's, what is this? How can I be faithful in this moment to, to help the person? Um, and I, it, it got to a point where the faithful thing to say uh, was the problem we were experiencing is that 
the other person believed they had a right to feel a certain way about those people. They believed they had a right to feel that way. They had a right to, uh, and, and the, the, all the problems that we were experiencing was more of the outward signs, like how to manage it, how to control it, whether to say it at this time or that time. And it was, it was a problem of discretion, not a problem of, of generation. And I said, that's where, that's where our disagreement really is, and that's why we cannot move forward. See, I have the feelings that you describe sometimes, but when I have those feelings, I know I need to run to the cross and ask for mercy. And you believe that you have a right to those feelings and that it's just a problem of not sharing them. And it took months and a lot of time and energy to get to that point because contempt is harder to pin down than anger. And the last one is malice. When Jesus says, whoever says to his brother, you fool, is in danger of hellfire, this phrase, you fool, is actually much harsher than our modern language. Like, in modern language, if we said, you fool, that wouldn't carry the same weight as it did then. Um, because in, in that day, in the days of Jesus, you fool would have levied the entire weight of the culture against a person. If you've read the book of Proverbs, um, you know that it, it's really a comparison in some ways of two, uh, two, two people. One is the wise person and one is the fool. And the fool is the rebellious one who thumbs his nose at God, who hurts and, and brings a disgrace to his family and things like that. And, and in a shame and an honor society, saying, you fool, would have thrust the whole weight of the culture at that person. They, were, they deserved whatever they were about to get. Um, malice is an unrestrained desire to do evil to another. It combines the evil outburst of anger, harbored anger, and contempt, a disregard for a person's value. Malice describes Satan's intentions towards humanity. And that's why malice, if you, if, you, if you get there and you stay there, that's why you are in danger of hellfire, because Satan's intentions towards humanity are malice. Unrestrained desire to do evil to you and me. That's why Paul said in Colossians 3.8, he said, but now put off, get rid of it, drop it like a hot potato, anger, contempt, and malice. Then Jesus, for the second part, he says, therefore, and he tells us, gives us two illustrations of what it looks like to be for a person with a kingdom heart, what that fruit tastes like, what that would look like. And he says, therefore, and he gives an illustration of first a person leaving uh, their gift at the altar and going and being reconciled to a brother, or a person finding their adversary on their way to court, the person they are about to be in trial against, and to try and make reconciliation and make uh, an equitable uh, way to resolve the conflict prior to court. He gives those two illustrations. And in that, therefore, Jesus is not giving us a new checklist to help us avoid anger, contempt, and malice. Jesus is giving us a revelation of the preciousness of human beings. Let me say that again. He's not giving us another checklist to try harder at doing. 
He's giving us a revelation of how precious you and I all are. And even your adversaries. He's giving you a revelation of how precious his kids are to him. Jesus is working at the much deeper level of the source of actions. Now, we read that first part, that first illustration, and sometimes we think about, oh, well, if I, I brought my offering to church and I put it in the envelope and I realize that I'm offended at somebody, I should really go and make that right first and then come back and make the offering. It's kind of more casual. And, but that's not the context Jesus is saying. Jesus, when he says, leave your gift at the altar, he's talking about like the annual um, the annual ceremony or atonement celebra- uh, ceremony that would have been had at the temple where they would have made sacrifices or they would have made an offering um, in anticipation of a future Messiah that our sins were forgiven or were covered. And that we, if we found out that somebody else, it wasn't even anger that we had, if we found out that somebody else was angry at us, we would leave the sacred ceremony like a groom walking away from the altar and say, hold on, honey, I got to make something right. But it wasn't my anger. I was going to the person who else was angry for the purposes of seeing them set free from the danger and the destruction of the anger in their heart. I would leave the sacred ritual, the sacred ceremony, the thing that would even bring like, people would be like, why are you doing that? Where are you going? This is so uncivilized to go and see somebody else set free. What kind? Think of the quality of life and character that must be in a person like that. What kind of thought life? What kind of feelings? What kind of moods? What kind of habits of body and mind? What deep concerns would you find in a person that was willing to be embarrassed by leaving a sacred ritual to go set somebody else free from their anger that they didn't even hold themselves? That's how precious God sees that person who's mad at you. And second, with genuine love for your adversary to try and resolve a matter before it comes to trial. Jesus does not say that we should simply give in to the demands of our adversary or that court is always wrong and sinful in every case. Jesus is describing what it looks like to be genuinely committed to what is good for our adversary, even at some personal cost to ourselves. And do you notice when he says in this last part where he says, Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, you be thrown into prison, and assuredly I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. What he's saying is is that in the human system of justice and judgment will always cost more in human soul than you just going and trying to make it right with mercy. Can we approach our adversary without hostility, without bitterness, without a merciless drive to win? Are we prepared to sacrifice our own interest for that of another if it seems wise, even for those people who are our adversaries? Will we keep a joyous confidence in God regardless of what happens? 
Because, yes, Jesus is giving us a revelation of the preciousness of human beings. But what he's also doing is Jesus is describing himself. He was already in the sacred, most sacred place in eternity in perfect fellowship with God. And we were the we were the person that was left out and angry and rebellious to God. And he left the altar, so to speak, and the sacred place to go and see us be set free from our sin, not because of anything he had in himself. We are the adversary that was on our way to court and end up in prison. And he came alongside us on the way where we were headed to destruction. And he came to make things right for us and with us. This is the love of the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is not just for your physical, mental, and emotional well-being. It is for your heart, your inner man, your inner woman, that the roots that you are plugged into would be him and him alone. And therefore, we can stop worrying about on the fruit on our branches because we are know we are so plugged in and drawing from the life of Jesus so much that we know, even if we can't see it and we don't understand it, the fruit on our branches are the fruit that looks like him.